This is an interview on the neuroscience of architectural attention with Harry Francis Mulgrave. The interviewer was Joseph Bedford, produced for attention of Audio Journal for Architecture. The interview took place over Skype on December 20th, 2012, between Princeton and Chicago. Hello. Hi, is that Harry Francis Mulgrave? Yes. Hi, uh, this is Joseph Bedford from Attention. Harry Francis Mulgrave is a professor of history and theory at Illinois Institute of Technology, where he is also the director of the International Center for Sustainable Cities. Over the course of his career, he has worked as an architect, editor, translator, teacher, and historian. He's authored more than a dozen books, including The Architect's Brain, Neuroscience, Creativity, and Architecture, published in 2010, and he is currently completing one entitled Theory and Design in the Age of Biology, Reflections on the Art of Building. In December of 2012, Joseph Bedford, a doctoral candidate at the Princeton University School of Architecture, interviewed Mr. Mulgrave to investigate about how current habits of attention are changing, how this changed the nature of the future subject of architecture, and how architecture might theorize its role in this changing attentional field. The documentary begins with Mr. Mulgrave describing some of the new discoveries in the cognitive sciences, including the role of the body in constructing our environments and the relationships between conception and perception. Then the discussion moves on to how these new discoveries might influence architecture and how they might make us reconsider the past 30 years of architectural history. So could I start by framing the conversation somewhat personally, perhaps, and asking you to comment um, on your own experience over the last 20 years of this changing media? For example, um, how your attention is uh, distracted or not by email, PDAs, uh, Google, uh, and the like. Well, um as far as email, I, my initial reaction to it when it first began was very positive. It sort of allowed me almost immediate global contact with a lot of people. Um, today, I'm much less enthusiastic about it because uh, I think a decade ago, I maybe spent two hours a week on communication issues. And now I probably spend four times that much on email, you know, sometimes more than an hour a day. I think it's completely out of control. It's a it's a, a major infringement on my time. Although I certainly appreciate the occasional email that I get every now and then from somebody that uh, maybe I don't know that has something positively uh, positive to say. Um, Google, I'm I'm still very positive about it. I, there's a lot of factual information at hand now that was that I have to go to previously have to look through books to find. It uh, they've even got books online. Uh, in in my case, there is a lot of 19th century, early 20th century material that's now available, um, and it's also. Uh, I think for architecture, it's also very helpful in the sense that so much of the design work is online before it ever gets built, so it's fairly easy to keep up with who's, who's doing what. Um, so I have nothing negative to say about Google, but I don't uh, own, and I'm probably the only person who ever talked to a cell phone or a tablet, uh, because I don't, uh, I sort of shy away from from interruptions in my work, and um, I think it's a little bit better that, uh, I mean, it's the, the people that know me know ways to, to get a hold of me, and usually when I'm working, I have the phone off. Now, I, I'm, uh, <clears throat> I mean, my work is, I mean, demands a lot of uh, focus and attention, and uh, and, I, and I, I always, whenever I'm doing something serious, I get away from everything else. 
So you've done a lot of work recently on the cognitive sciences in, in your book, The Architect's Brain. So can I ask you uh, why might architects want to look more to the cognitive sciences today in particular in understanding the role of attention in architecture? Well, let me just sort of preface my answer by saying that I was originally educated in the 60s, which there was a lot of emphasis on anthropology and sociology and the like. But I think what's going on today is very different because the uh, I think the biological scientists are revealing very new and essential information on how we engage the world. And it's not speculative, I think, as it was a half century ago. And in particular, with regard to the built environment, Architectural theory over the last 40 years or so has had its political theories, social theories, perceptual theories, but all were speculative. Neutra once noted that the pure aesthetics of a bygone brand of speculation, even something like tra aesthetics in itself has been transformed with new areas like neuroaesthetics. But I think the biological sciences really are, are not offering anything, any new theory. They're simply presenting a lot of material uh, from investigations, not all of it is, is fully explained yet, but, but uh, we're, I mean, we've learned enormous amounts in the last decade. But I think what is interesting are the new humanities, which are drawing upon the sciences and creating uh, these new models of human nature that in some cases are very different from what we imagined we were 10 or 20 years ago. And this is, I think, what has the, uh, the relevance for designers. What would you say these uh, new materials are that are being presented to, to the humanities? In a sense, what are the new tools and methods as well of the cognitive sciences for showing us new materials? Well, I mean, what they're coming up with are entirely new models of, of, of who we are. And, and, and again, there are a number of fields, everything from sociology to neurophenomenology today is is drawing very heavily on these on these scientific results. And I think things are moving very quickly today, uh, including what the neuroimaging devices are picking up. If you take something like memories, for instance, it, it is something that uh, it's an activity that takes place, to, that begins to take place in the hippocampus where they are ignited. But there's also this underlying pleasure or hedonic circuit that becomes active as we go, as we experience an event. So a little over a decade or so, some a group of scientists in Montreal, for instance, took a, a group of, of uh, classical music buffs and put them in an MRI and recorded their favorite pieces, and then they recorded the, the neural patterns when they had shivers down the spine. Again, these, these are patterns that uh, um, this hedonic circuit, as it were, it becomes active, with, uh, this, uh, very similar circuit becomes active with maternal and romantic love, sexual orgasms, a good meal, companionship, a beautiful work of art, and presumably a, a great work of architecture. So I think what is important there is not so much the pattern that materializes, but the fact that a very different pattern materializes when someone listens to, to music they don't like or walks into a bad work of architecture, for instance. Um, I'm curious what the MRI or the, or the PET scan actually offers us. I'm, I'm wondering what kind of a window onto the brain this, this really is. Um, the, the complexity of what takes place with any event is something that, that cannot be fully recorded. We don't have that much definition with these sorts of machines. When I refer to something like the hedonic circuit, I mean, that's a group of modules within the brain that sort of... Um, become activated in the brainstem and move up into the orbitofrontal cortex. And there's a certain pattern to it. And, and at the end of that process is something that's very pleasurable. We get a 
release of dopamine into the, the upper reaches of the brain, which makes us very happy. But I think this window is not simply limited to neural patterns of thought. What is, I think, what is more important about this hedonic circuit, for instance, is the precognitive or the pre-structural nature of its activity. Again, architectural theory over the last 40 or so years has been preoccupied with philosophical abstractions of rationalism, Marxism, semiotics, post-structural theory, Freudianism, Deleuzean, Fold, and other things. But I think what the biological sciences are reminding us is that we, like all organisms, engage the environment in much more direct and immediate terms. We are not in a way, spectators passively conceptualizing on what we take in. We're not converting everything to signs or compressing bad memories down into somewhere into an unconscious, but we are actively constructing the world with our bodies through our emotional and sensory motor systems. The sociologist uh, Tim Ingold once, I think, put it very well and by noting that in playing a piano or a cello, we are not aware of our body playing, but our body's playing is our awareness. The experience of architecture is the moving body's awareness of how the building affects its homeostatic conditions. And so in a primal sense, I think it either pleases us or displeases us, but of course there are a lot of nuances um, between those two poles. So what is that new model of perception or thinking in general that we're, we're getting right now? Um, you, you speak about the old model perhaps wanted to kind of locate thought in some kind of center and maybe reproduce a mechanistic model of the mind. What were we really seeing now about the way the brain is functioning as a whole or in relation to the body that's really providing a new model? Well, I mean, it just it, we've always made that distinction, for instance, between perception and conception. And I think things like that are very much obsolete because perception is, we're beginning to realize, is a much more holistic process. Uh, it takes place in many parts of the brain simultaneously or, or even near simultaneously. If we look at something like visual perception, for instance, color is processed in the V4 area of the visual cortex, but it's processed slightly faster than we process form or motion, the latter of which is processed in the V5 area. And then there are many other processing stations that also become active. Uh, so the point of this is that we don't really have a unified consciousness of the world, but we really, in fact, have a series of micro-consciousnesses, that's a word, adjusting their content with each other. Um, you've written in your other scholarly work a lot about the history of architectural theory, so I obviously kind of have to ask you here how these new models of the mind, models of perception, would change the way we have understood the history of architectural theory or some of the things that recent theoreticians such as Kevin Lynch's work on um, orientation in the city or Norberg Schultz's attempts to find structural bases of perception or even Aldo Rossi's thinking about the depth of collective memory in the city or Venturi's thoughts about ambiguity. Um, those attempts were 40 years ago now um, but is it that somehow the work of cognitive science might impel us back towards those theorists and resurrect something in their work that was intuitive and perhaps right, in a sense? Well, I, I don't think the new models are basically going to change in the sense they're always going to refer back to older ideas. And to just take someone like Lynch, for instance, his work has now been absolutely proven in the sense that we've located the two areas of the brain that process place in the components of navigation. And then as it turns out, landmarks are one of the primary ways in which we orient ourselves within a city. And of course, you could say the same thing about Venturi and Rossi as well. But I think it's not so much that we're going to go back to 
some of these older theories. I think what we're going to have is sort of an introduction of a lot of new things. And I think there are two major discoveries or understandings that we have now that we didn't have 15 years ago, which have a lot of profound implications for architecture. I think one of them is our new understanding of emotion, which has oddly enough been noticeably absent from architecture for the last half century, since probably the days of Gideon, if you wanted to go back to find an architect talking about emotion. But let me also, first of all, I guess, begin by defining it biologically as if emotion is the precognitive response of an organism to a stimulus or environment, and it proceeds, by generally procedure, a conscious awareness of our feelings. But there's been an enormous amount of research with emotion because it actually determines how we attend to what within our environmental fields, what we place in the background, what we focus our attention on. And it's vital for architecture because we are, in fact, constructing the environment where things take place. So architecture is really emotional from the very start. But again, I asked the question, where has architectural theory been on the issue of emotion over the past half century? We've scarcely considered it, I think. You'll rarely find it in practice unless somebody's designing a church or a cemetery. But it's now clear that this emotional activity, that hedonic circuit, takes place on a precognitive level. That is, long before we sit around and reflect on whether some <laughs> pedometal porch or whatever has some sort of palladian significance or not. The fact is that our bodies evaluate the suitability or comfort of an entrance, a staircase, or a room long before we consciously reflect on it. And architects need to understand this, that so much of the architectural experience is pre-conscious and, again, relates to our body. Architecture can enhance or depress our vitality like every environment can. It can strengthen or weaken our image of ourselves. In the long run, one could even hypothesize that it could significantly alter our cognitive ability in itself. Again, I think it's a difficult issue to sort of introduce into schools because I think for years, as I mentioned in the 60s, I could go back and there would be a lot of sociological theory. It turned out to be all very incorrect, but at least there was some theory that people were basing some of their design decisions on, and I think that's no longer the case. But I, I want to mention another area which I think is of great importance for a designer, and that's the discovery of mirror neurons. These are effectively templates of neurons that fire in response to what we perceive around us. If I see you swinging a hammer, for instance, there are neurons in my premotor cortex that fire as if I were swinging the hammer. In other words, it's the same neural pattern as if I were swinging the hammer. They don't fire in the motor cortex, which actually moves my hand and arms. But what I'm doing is mentally simulating what your own motor activity. I'm simulating how you grasp the handle and the rhythmic movement of your arms. We thought it was just a simply sort of a social or a visual activity, although if I hear you swinging a hammer, we now know that, uh, again, those same neurons are active. I don't even have to look at it. But we also have sort of recently come to realize that there are mirror neuron circuits that fire in response to our inanimate forms of the built environment. So, for instance, if we go and visit the Richardsonian Library, we can read in a way the force of the hammer and the chisel against the hardness of the granite. If we view a twisted column where Benini's of Baldacino and St. Peter's, we figuratively twist internally in an act of visceral simulation. If we observe any material, we know it's tactile and temperature qualities because, in fact, the visual cortex is tightly connected with the somatosensory cortex. And so any visual image of a material, we, in a way, simulate what it feels like to touch a runner hand across that material. 
So is it that when we also see um, screen images that present us simulacra of things that we've experienced, do the mirror neurons also fire in that moment in a sense we have empathy with images as well? And what does that suggest for what you said about architecture operating primarily on a, a pre-conscious level and the, the alternate counter model that people might say that images um, often attract our conscious attention? Does that suggest that in a way both architecture and images are simultaneously operating across the conscious and pre-conscious register? Yeah, I mean, when people sit and watch a, a sad movie, they, they their eyes well with tears. Well, why 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 does that happen? Of course, you're you're living as, in, as a surrogate to the person that you see on the screen. But also, what happens if somebody comes into a room and they have just an ever so distinct impression on their face? You can read that. You can read that maybe something happened. You can say, "Is everything all right?" So we know that basically what it comes down to is just very slight nuances in facial expression expressions can immediately incite or ignite a particular emotion within us. By the way, this process is generally referred to as embodied simulation. It really is the old sort of basic 19th century theories of, of empathy, if we want to go back to Robert Fisher and Heinrich Wolflin. Uh, mirror neurons for almost a decade of research were presumed to be only something that existed on a social level. But we now know if we look at a rake leaning up against the wall, we will simulate that angle. Again, I think we begin to see that architectural forms, they make a, a very important impression on us. And some of it is pre-conscious, but of course, it also some of it, you know, once those forms are found to be very pleasing or very exciting, then of course, we become fully aware of something that's new and something that's unique. And this is why we enjoy it. So I think it's an area that unfortunately, one of the limitations of MR eyes have got to be sort of strapped down. But we're getting, I think, new technologies uh, probably over the next five years that will allow us to, people, for instance, to walk through a building and we can begin to see what is happening and what, what neurons are firing and, and this and that. But I think I think mirror neurons are very exciting for architects because um, because they show that we, we, we have a we have a connection with the environment that we've probably have never thought about before. Is that connection indiscriminate to concrete material forms on the one hand or flat screen images on the other? I'm wondering if there's no hierarchy that might be said to exist between grades of empathy. If, for example, we imagine a situation of stepping out of Penn Station on 7th Avenue in New York and having this rush of both the concrete environment around you, the people, the streets, but also at the same time huge flashing images on the corner of Macy's and across the street in front of you. Are we saying that there's basically no difference uh, between the concrete and the imaginary realms here and one could be empathetic equally to both? For instance, if, if we look at an architect, say, Peter Zumtor, and we look at it, who does a very highly constructed type of work that has a lot of focus on detail and sensory impressions, I guess Jacques Herzog does the same, uh, I think we're going to have a very different response. People have a very different response to his architecture, for instance, than they do to your typical sort of glass box, which is everywhere within a city. So then the question becomes, why does you know this work of architecture appeal to people very differently than, say, a glass box does? Well, a glass box has, in many respects, very little detail. It has a smooth surface, which is cool to the touch. Glass is always cold when you touch it. I mean, architects have tried to find ways around it. They use light, and they use patterns in the glass, and this and that, to try to give it some quality. 
But I think what this really begins to show us is that these efforts to put a texture or some color or other things within the glass shows that we need a little more sensory enrichment than what a bunch of gray glass boxes, you know, in your typical city provide us with. Let me, can I take it just one more direction? Uh, there was a biologist, Jack Hansep, who was really one of the pioneers of emotional research. And one of the things he points out is that we share sort of seven basic emotional instincts in common with all other mammals. And one of these is the instinct of curiosity or the pursuit of novelty. And I think the reason for this is obvious because we are organisms. We sort of crave new information. We need that information to really survive in the world. And these uh, new perceptual variations, as it were, they also teach us something. They lead to neural growth. Herbert Spencer suggested about it more than a century ago that we need this excitement because our neurological systems have to maintain themselves in good working order. But Again, going back to the example of 7th Avenue, there's also potentially a downside to this process is the fact that you've got people walking around completely overloaded, looking down at their phones or texting and, and to the point of distraction. And, you know, as a result, I think it does lead to an inability to really think well. Take an area like neuroplasticity, what we're now understanding is that the brain can really alter its cognitive structures in a relatively short time. And we never knew that before. We thought that neural growth was something that took place in childhood and by you get to the middle 20s, it's all over with. And that's what you have for the rest of your life. But we're now really beginning to understand there's a significant amount of change that takes place through plasticity as we go on and that these are in fact altering the way that we perceive the world. The example of 7th Avenue, I bring it up and try to connect it as well to the smaller example of the PDA in the palm of someone's hands walking around the building, because it seems that we can only expect more and more of this in the coming years as technology proliferates and we can have screen images much more cheaply on almost every surface if we wanted to. And the tendency might be, you know, for reasons of advertising or excitement to proliferate the video image in the environment. And I'm thinking of a recent article and, and then book which you cited in your book by Nicholas Carr called Is Google Making Us Stupid? And he developed that into an argument about what screen images might be understood to do to our brains to, as you say, the very plastic behavior of our brains uh, in comparison to other concrete environments is that they seem, in his view, looking at some research, to train the brain towards patterns of distracted attention. And he thinks the consequence of this is actually that what is being pushed out is the training that the brain might have towards focused attention. And in those moments of focused attention, the shifting that can take place between short-term memory and long-term memory. So that this pluralization of distraction creates a forgetful habit of the mind. So to shift perhaps a little bit to ask you about this question of memory, short-term memory, long-term memory, because it seems to me that architecture has traditionally had a, quite a relationship with memory. If you think of Francis Yates's work on the relation of the house to memory or Rossi and uh, Maurice Halbach's interest in collective memory, maybe that's a way to approach the same kind of question as to how these habits of attention and distraction might be addressed in terms of the question of our memories, our short-term and our long-term memories. Yeah, well, I think the crucial point, which you've just mentioned, is that architecture, for instance, has had a similar uh, transformation with the advent of the computer and design. And again, it raises the question of, uh, I mean, what it is, first of all, is replaced is generally more, inherently more reflective act of drawing, which takes time and, and some sort of intense focus. 
And a computer design or a computer keyboard or even moving a mouse with images on a screen, uh, it's an inherently much more a quicker activity that involves a lot of clicking. So if we want to put it in Heideggerian terms, is the computer is sort of a, you know, lead us into the path of calculative thinking and does, uh, uh, as opposed to the older meditative thinking that drawing with the pencil did. And of course, you've got two camps sort of fighting over this issue right now. Someone like uh, Lars Spreibrook, the Dutch architect, strongly argues that one can think the same way on the computer and maybe even think a little bit faster, but it's interesting that he also invokes John Ruskin uh, so much in his theory. But then you've got a group of architects or critics like Richard Sennett or Johanny Plasma who strongly believe that the disembodied or the formalist exercises on the computer screen do divert the designer's attention away from the responses of people actually experiencing the built environment. I think in many ways, I don't think it's going to change as quickly or as seriously as we say. I live in Chicago, and every day there's four or five new glass tall buildings going up, and basically they all look the same, the same detailing, the same glass, with just slight variations here and there. What happens when you create an environment entirely of glass buildings? So, I mean, what happens, it probably drives some people out of the city, again, looking for the, the greenness and other things in suburbia that may not be available. But um, my point is that I think, I don't know whether the computer can be improved, and, and, and I don't know whether how many people are ever going to le learn to use a pencil in fact, I just heard yesterday that uh, some school system somewhere in the United States is no longer teaching people to write in cursive. So, I mean, that, that that's perfect. They learned to type at the age of uh, six, and they never learned to write. I, I think somehow we'll make an adjustment, and I think at some point the fascination people have with their PDAs will go away, or at least won't be as serious as it is right now. I think it's a new toy right now, and, and uh, you know, those, those sorts of fads tend to be short-lived. We've um, shifted a little to talk about the architect's brain, I suppose, rather than the, the user's brain, to talk about the creative process. Um, I'm wondering about the connection between the two. You're talking in this debate over the computer, whether the computer can create some concentrated focus. I would imagine that the skyscrapers that you're talking about in Chicago probably produced using all kinds of automated systems. The claim there would be that there's a kind of repetition and thoughtlessness to the design process whereby people aren't particularly meditating on qualities of spaces and therefore they're all turning out homogenous. But it is possible to imagine a highly concentrated computer-generated design processes. But but is there is there a claim that you're suggesting that the more concentration and meditation that you put into the process of design, the more likely it is that the kinds of spaces that would emerge at the other end would be more rich and therefore lend themselves to qualities of meditative spaces that one could focus on and be engaged in? Well, I, I think, obviously, the more thought that an architect puts into the environment or the how one experiences the environment is obviously important. Let me give you an example uh, of, I don't know if you're familiar with Merlin Donald and his cognitive model of human evolution. We've sort of evolved in three stages. One was a mimetic stage where uh, we enhanced our motor control, and this is what distinguished us from primates. But then we went through two later stages of mythic stage, which is basically the introduction of mythology, and then a theoretic phase, which was probably the last 50,000 years in his scenario, where we had the ability to take our ideas and put them into other forms, whether it would be art or writing or other things like that. 
But what's interesting about his model is that when the mythic and the theoretic phases of cognitive evolution appeared, they didn't replace the, the underlying mimetic phase. This mimetic phase wasn't completely displaced, but it remained sort of the, the basis of the arts and our social rituals, even though we also are quite capable of these mythic and theoretic aspects of our being. And he, he points to things like dance and music, uh, arts that, if you go back to Semper, where he argued were cosmic because, like architecture, they involve both the ornament and order. My point is that I still think we have these underlying sensitivities that I don't think will be obscured or taken away by these newer devices. And in fact, artistic play and creating some sort of an order within our environments are very intrinsic to our characters as well well as our appreciation of things like craftsmanship. So we're always, I think, going to have that underlying basis. And um, and again, I think it's important to see that this basis is, is very much a part of our being. In other words, if you look at an architect's draw, often you'll see them slightly swaying because they have to get in a particular frame of mind, a particular rhythm in order to sort of seek out what they're attempting to put onto paper. And it's true that this will never be, I've never seen anybody on a computer keyboard or using a mouse sway. There are these intrinsic qualities to our nature and not necessarily universal ones, but, but qualities that are not going to necessarily be uh, taken away as we sort of move along in the technological world that we're in. Would you say that Merlin Donald's first stage of the mimetic could be connected to, um, you also cited in your book some of the work of Lakoff and Johnson, showing how there was a fundamental metaphorical structure to the way thought emerged, that somehow these later stages of what you said, the mythic and the theoretic, emerge out of a corporeal relationship. So in Lakoff and Johnson's thinking, abstract thought itself comes from, and some way depends on, deep metaphorical structures of verticality, containment, which are embedded in our language. You've resisted saying that those things are universal, because what seems be a potential hazard in finding a new way to discuss these deeper structures of cognition is that it might bring us back to some of the problems that were faced in the last 30 years as the generation of post-structuralist architectural theorists displaced this earlier generation of theorists, say, I think probably exemplified the most by Christian Norberg Schultz, in showing that some of these structures that underlay perception had to always be subject to social, cultural, historical, and linguistic dimensions dimensions of perception, and that there was always problematics of social coding and ideology that were greater problems to be faced, and these appeals to the deep structural level in uh, terms of these architectural theories represented an ideological problem, that they masked some uh, social and cultural and, and historical contingencies. So would you say that these cognitive sciences, in bringing us back to understanding these deeper mimetic structures, risks taking a step back in terms of the advances of post-structuralist theories? Let me go back to, to Lakoff and Johnson. What they really showed was that conceptual meaning arises from this girl or this girl and a purposeful engagement with the world. And this is not unique to them. Antonio Damasio has put forth his somatic marker hypothesis, which again suggests the same thing. 
a couple of other people have followed as well. Don Tucker has referred to the mind as a great sensory motor machine that must weave its abstract tapestries onto the tapestries onto the loom of sensory motor networks. And of course, what he's referring to is the fact that there is no thinking part of the brain that actually takes place in the somatosensory cortex, which is the area that runs across the middle of our heads, uh, the horizontally, which uh, which connects all our body sensations and bodily movements. And what he means by, again, referring to us as a sensory motor machine is that our anatomical development and our anatomical development conceptualization had to take place in these sensory motor networks rather than in some other part of the brain. Another philosopher with a similar view is Albert New, who argues that consciousness is more akin to dancing than to digestion. In other words, it's not a two-stage process. And that uh, things like memories are, in a way, the, the tools with which, or the feet with which we dance, I guess you could say. In my earlier work, I talked about metaphor and the fact that it's so much connected to these sensory motor systems, and Merleau-Ponty famously characterized his notion of consciousness as flesh. But I, I, you know, I just finished a book on the theme of embodiment, I've come away from a feeling that I haven't really come close to sort of peeling away the layers of what this notion of embodiment is. And again, this takes us back to the work of someone like Norberg Schultz or Christopher Alexander, who I actually I liked very much. But I think these models, to some extent, were reductive in the sense that they tried to break down the architectural experience. And I think what distinguishes the newer models is that they're far more complex and richer in sort of our patterns of behavior. Um, again, the more we learn of the brain, or I should say not the brain, but our entire biological entity, the more we realize that it effectively has no recipe. It is, a, in essence, sort of a homeostatic organism that struggles to survive and maintains its balance. But it also is programmed, if you use a word that probably one shouldn't use, to sort of capture some moments of pleasure along the way. And this brings in this whole social dimension uh, to these new models, which I think is very important. And I can just point to one article by Francesco Valera and Evan Thompson, which carried the title Radical Embodiment. And I think this will get back to your point of post-structuralism. Basically, they argued that consciousness is forged out of an intertwining of the nervous system, the body, and the environment on three levels. One level or one dimension is the organismic or the homeostatic regulation of the body, again, how we maintain that balance. Another level is the sensory motor coupling between the organism and the environment, that is how we move and perceive the world. And thirdly, and this is where I think there's their theories are most unique and informative is that we have this whole dimension of intersubjective interactions with other people, which again presupposes that these interactions already take place within certain cultural values. So what I think they're doing is building a system where there's no distinction between nature or nurture, between genes and culture, because in fact, we are, again, if you just look at us as biological organisms, we are continually in contact with the environment. We change the environment. The environment in turn changes us. And whereas the uh, these transformations, if you go to Darwinian theory, would take thousands of years to change our brains as it were, 
where we now realize that this is not the case. These models are very dynamic in their structure, and that each generation, just to follow up on uh, on Thompson's later work, he argues that each generation is capable of reconstructing new and altered sensory motor patterns on multiple levels, genetic, cellular, social, and cultural. But there's another interesting question, I think, that arises out of it for architecture, which again is something I think we you alluded to earlier, which is that do our images of what constitutes architecture on a computer screen or in a magazine, for instance, inform the student of what architecture should be? In other words, do we look at images on a computer screen and then design images that conform to those Im- to, to the computer-like reality of what we see on the screen? And do these images differ, for instance, from those gained traditionally through travel or sensuously experiencing buildings in person? In other words, can one appreciate the spatiality of the pantheon from a computer image, or do we understand the, 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 the Cortona's facade? of Santa Maria della Pace from a computer image or the acoustic qualities of Chart without actually going to these buildings and experiencing them firsthand. And this is why I think that what is taking place is is really a, uh, a transformation in our mindset in a big way, and it, it hasn't completely happened yet. But I think it is going to knock out a lot of the issues and the questions that were so prominent within post-structural theory. And let me also just add in this regard, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of a child of the 60s. I grew up with the worldview, as it were, that led to post-structural thinking. I was fascinated with it. I found it charming. And it does have its moments of insights, but I think a lot of post-structural theory misses some very crucial points that biology is underscoring today, which is that 95% of our mental activity is non-rational, it's non-conceptual, but of course this doesn't deny that whole conceptual realm to architects, it just means that we're spending a lot of time focusing on 5% of what is really going on. And I think the other problem with a lot of theory, and it's not just post-structural theory, it's really the larger spectrum of postmodern theory, again, they sort of had the belief that, that reasoning was done with words or symbols, but we now, I think, have begun to understand that actually that's not the way it worked, as Lakoff and Johnson have argued, that it really is the body itself by which we perceive and understand the world, and that reason is just one of those inhibiting areas of the prefrontal cortex that was very late in terms of of its evolution. So to, to give an example to that, would you say that the discourse around close reading or formal analysis or even the kind of motif of reading in architecture that seems to have merged with Eisenman's discourse and also uh, Mario Gandolsonis, I'm thinking of a piece that he wrote on Graves and Eisenman in 72 called Reading Eisenman. Would you say that the motif of close reading, the attention and analysis, therefore inhabited um, this old model that you're saying, this over-focus on the 5% that reasoning was something that involved analytical faculties and now this 95% understanding that reasoning is a much more distributed function. Well, I, I think what, when you focus on that 5%, like Eisenman did, and you come up with experiences where you're trying to convey alienation or a state of human descenderedness and all of the other things, and I mean, I, Peter Eisenman's, a, a, I mean, I'm, I'm not at all criticizing him, but but the problem is, I mean, that's not what architecture is. I mean, architecture is not there to create these highly conceptualized conditions that have no relationship to the way people experience architecture. I, I think what these models are going to suggest is architecture is really much more basic 
we always try to overcomplicate it. And it's not that we can't build these highly metaphoric, illusional models of what we're trying to do. But I think if you take something as simple as a staircase, it's got very carefully considered dimensional relationships between the tread and the riser of the handrail is a certain height where it's comfortable to the hand. When someone ascends that staircase, they feel ennobled. They, they feel they've been treated with a certain dignity because it really sort of assists the staircase, assists the human body in moving through space in a very graceful way. And for instance, there's been some interesting research on dancers and, and again, the way that they move through space and the way that we relate to that internally is if, again, we're simulating those muscular movements in our own bodies. And I think, again, that's very important to architects. Maybe this is a place to bring in the question of ambiguity that you addressed in your book. When you've described the plasticity of the brain and the way it likes to habituate to certain patterns and it prefers to generalize and get rid of a lot of detail and fill in the projection and to repeat certain habituated patterns. It seems that that is what we might connect to the normative surrounding structures of walls and stairs and windows, things that we're familiar with. But then, and because you mentioned a stair, there's obviously Eisenman's upside-down red stair, which was designed to do the opposite of that, to shock a strange, grab your attention, and awaken you. And you say something in the chapter on ambiguity in your book, that there are certain kinds of objects or things, artworks, that do grab our attention in an unusual way way because we can't quite figure them out. They refute these familiar, habituated forms. And that actually there's something quite appealing about that. There's a desire that the brain has to open up again to the world. And these strategies of estrangement do help us open up to the world. I'm just trying to give a sense of what Eisenman's project was and, and even more the claims of a critical project in architecture to create a critical subject through the estranging effects and through the production of ambiguities. I'm thinking of something like Venturi's work? Well, I think you know, Venturi's theory was obviously very important when it appeared in the mid-60s, and, and it really did transform and bring in some issues. He had done a lot of study in Italy with Mannerist architecture, Baroque architecture. I mean, again, we, we do like novelty, but interesting enough, one building will win the AIA award you know, one year, and the next year, nobody wants to look at it. So novelty can wear off pretty quickly. I think it's not the novelty in and of itself, in and of the red staircase or, or something else, but rather the fact that when we become intrigued with something, something that's different, when it may even take us several minutes, if not days, to figure out what was different than we initially did not see or understand, then we come upon the fact that there was some human labor, human thought put into that. Yeah, ambiguity, I think, Think is really fundamental to design. We like enigmas. We like to see something different. But if it's something different and there's not a whole lot of content there other than the fact that it's different, we tire of it very quickly. If something is different, the Salk Center is, is a place where people, scientists, do go to be alone and to think and to work in their labs. To go back to the example of Sharon's Philharmonic Hall, this is something very different. This is where you come to be within a community of people. And when he put that performing stage in the middle of the plan, where you sit and look at the orchestra, and then you can also at the same time watch the people listening to the music or watching you listening to the music. First time I was in there reminded me of, of these provisional Fourth of July things that are set up in these little small towns and villages in the sense that what that quality that that hall has is that sense of affiliation. And going back to that, he died circuit that I mentioned, we know that that sense of affiliation or being accepted within a group, being treated with some dignity by our fellow creatures and the like is something that makes us very happy. 
a final question to try and kind of wrap up and connect a couple of uh, loose ends. When you mentioned the mirror neurons and the fact that even in some of the studies there's no noticeable difference between which parts of the brain fire during memories or recollections and which parts fire during original experiences and that there's actually much more of a similarity in terms of what's happening in the brain between let's say virtual things and real things. That observation seems to me to be one of the intuitions that have been fueling this whole desire to create a critical attention-grabbing estranging architecture over the last 30 years because of a worry that there was a dissolution between the real and the imaginary and that even though there was only a small percentage of our brains is involved in, in conscious thought that it's that conscious thought which is some kind of imagined that captures social attention and it's in that imaginary realm that we can be so easily captured into precisely because of this similarity between the experience of the real world. That worry about that seems to be the reason why there had been that whole generation of architectural theorists wishing to make architecture grab your attention in such a way as to shake you and shock you from that imaginary empathy. You know, again, I would I would counter that, and, and I don't want to go into too much detail, but there's a part of a, a brain in each hemisphere called the insula. And it's basically behind the ears in each hemisphere. And we now understand it to be sort of the emotional center of the brain. It processes our feelings and the like. And there is a researcher at Arizona State University underneath within our bodies, our nervous system. We have a parasympathic and a sympathic system. One sort of speeds up our heart. The other sort of slows down our heart. What he has come across or sort of demonstrated is that these two distinct systems, which are contrary, actually wire one into the left insula and the other into the right insula. And I think the point of this, and, and this is, I think, why I would sort of counter some of the strategies of deconstruction, for instance. Basically, one system wants some environments we want to be enthused, excited about. You can take Sharon's Philharmonic Hall as you're sitting there waiting for Beethoven's Ninth to be performed and you have all of these sensations. That's a very stimulative environment. But if you take something like a Zen monastery or the Salk Center, you don't want to be stimulated. You actually want to conserve your energy and focus it on the type of work that you're doing. And I think this is a very important point for architects to understand is everything doesn't have to be stimulative. Everything doesn't have to just appeal to a certain side of our brain, as it were, that we really demand different things. We demand rest over the course of the day as much as we demand activity. And I think, again, we have to bring the, the overall environment into a better balance that way. You've been listening to an interview on The Neuroscience of Architectural Attention with Harry Francis Mulgrave. Thanks to Joseph Bedford, doctoral candidate in architecture at Princeton University School of Architecture, for being our host, and to Harry Francis Mulgrave, professor of architecture at IIT, for being our guest. The interview was produced for Attention, the audio journal for architecture, by Griffin Ofish.